Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out. You know, we've had a reconfiguration on Apple Music, and so this is just a, another reminder to make sure that you resubscribe to the Corner Store with my name, Kevin Koval. Please consider giving us a rating, those five stars, if you will. Uh, as you know, you know, we bring creatives into the space every week. And today we have uh, a very special guest, an author whose work uh, I deeply admire, admire both as a journalist and as a historian, uh, someone whose book I've you know, recently finished and um, am, am a big, big fan of. In the building, we have Kathy Iandali. Hello, hello. Thank you so much uh, for being here. And, and uh, it's real rap. I, I just, um, you know, not too long ago finished your very, very dope book, uh, God Save the Queens. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for checking it out. Yeah, it went to paperback um, three months ago now. Um, that was pretty cool. It is, you know, what I love, you know, I, uh, I also... Um, you know, I, I I wrote a book called People's History of Chicago. I'm a, I'm like a faux historian, fake historian, um, and of course, like love your centering of women uh, in this narrative of of history, which which you know I, I think it's probably you know misogyny and, and patriarchy that kind of decenters women. Um, but you've done such a dynamic job of, of you know from the beginning to now. Of, of ensuring that women are rightfully in the center of this conversation. But that, that the, the work that you did of framing and co- continually reframing is just very dope. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but let's, let's talk about, I mean, th- this book, I imagine, you know, it's, it's a well-documented, well-researched history. Um, what made you want to tell the story and, and how long did it take you to, to tell it? Well, first off, I originally wanted to write a book like this about 10 years before I actually got the book deal. Um, And, you know, it was a harder sell in 2008, 2009, because at that point, you know, it was like right before Nicki Minaj popped off. And I think that arguably in hip hop, mainstream women uh, female artists were not that big at that point. And I think that, you know, a lot of times uh, major publishers at least kind of look at things through a very singular lens and it was a lot harder sell. So, you know, I, over the, the course of those 10 years in between actually uh, starting to write the book, I had made writing about women in hip hop my primary beat as a hip hop journalist and by the time I brought the conversation back on the table, we had an abundance of women in the space, which was amazing. And it made it a lot easier to want to, you know, approach these publishers and, and kind of sell the story. But then when you turn around and you're looking at how much history you have to actually put together at that point, it was 40 years. So, you know, prior to that, it was three decades that I had four decades to worry about. Right. And, and so, yeah, but you mentioned, of course, like this has been obviously something that you've been writing about for a long time. You have credits and credits and credits um, as, as a journalist, many, many bylines. Um, you know, uh, how did you even begin to get started there? I mean, when, when, how, did, how did you even click into wanting to write about the culture and the genre and the, the art? Well, I mean, I think that 
So I started my first job as I guess in the music industry was um, in 96. I worked at a record store. And, and where are we? Is this Jersey? I know you have Jersey. Yeah, we're in, we're in suburban New Jersey at a Sam Goody. Right. Get a disco um, tape at Sam like Goody. Empire Records or like, <laughs> you know, but it was, I actually got that job because I saw Empire Records and I was like, wow. Yeah. Um, it was like, you know, <laughs> so I worked there for a few years and after that, I started handing out flyers for The Roots. And around the same time, I started to do, like, really rough, like, lowbrow journalism, like, writing, like, just kind of, like, you know, I guess the equivalent of what were zines, you know? Yeah. To, to punk. And I don't, hip-hop had a few zines, but didn't have my name in them. But I did write for a couple of spots. And then, you know, I started to take it a little more seriously. And I kind of ran the gamut of industry jobs right i um i worked at a major label i worked in artist management i worked in radio but all throughout i wrote you know i worked at fat beats you know and i i kind of just kept myself entrenched in the music industry in all of its various forms and i think that for me writing always stuck so you know, I went to NYU and got my master's in music business and, you know, became a professor and all these other things and just wanted to approach it from a very different angle because at the point that I started writing, print journalism was kind of floundering, right? And I still managed to, you know, get my reps in and vibe and source and places like that. And But, you know, I, I was turning more towards digital and just kept trying to put the conversation in places that it wasn't being had. Right. So, you know, there's, there was nothing more frustrating than mainstream publications having discussions on hip hop and not knowing really what they were talking about. Right. So what I, what I did was as soon as, you know, I earned my stripes in the hip hop journalism, um, you know, arena <laughs> yeah no I, I, and a ton i mean that's i mean you you wrote for a lot of different spaces right i mean billboard yeah. pitchfork source double xl vibe um i mean you have credits and credits and credits as a freelance i mean were you were you ever on staff somewhere or were you just freelancing all this um i was actually i was an editor at um at allhiphop.com i was an editor at bet.com and i was um, an editor at hiphopdx.com and very briefly I had helped with the relaunch of um, undergroundhiphop.com so you know I kind of you know made my moves in each of the you know main digital hip-hop uh, sites and stuff so yeah I was on I was on staff for a couple places but um, I managed to still like I guess you know one thing that I always wanted to do was continue the conversation of hip hop. And sometimes the conversation has to, um, you know, transcend the, just the hip hop, um, you know, groups like the uh, hip hop site or anything. So what was happening was like, I would be like an editor at a hip hop site, but then I would write hip hop pieces for the guardian or BBC, um, and, or pitchfork, 
and just really just try to continue the conversation while I was still helping to cultivate hip hop in a hip hop journalism, you know, forum. So yeah, I, I was, I was doing a lot at once and then around 2015, um, my dear friend prodigy, God rest his soul came to me and said he wanted to do another book. So he and I did a book, and it released in 2016. This is the cook, this is the cookbook that you guys wrote together. Yeah, is that commissary right? kitchen. Yeah, and my infamous prison cookbook. Yes. <laughs> um, so we wrote that book, and we had a couple of other plans for more books in the pipeline, and obviously God had other plans for P. So. You know, I, I reached the summer of 2017 after he passed, and I was, like, really just trying to figure out what was going to be next, you Wait, know, for me. If I can, how did you become close with him, if, if I can ask? You know, he, it was... I think the thing with, with Prodigy... I, I was on um, his first interview when he got out of prison. And the one thing was I was always a Mob Deep fan and always a huge Prodigy fan, right? But there was a part of Prodigy that was so witty and so sarcastic and had such a dry sense of humor. And the day we met, we met a couple, I met him before he went in, you know, like through hip hop or whatever, but we really connected at dojo over by NYU. Um, and for whatever reason, we just had the same dry sense of humor. Like, and, and we were, we just like, you know, spoke this mutual language of sarcasm and, we were just talking it out about some things, you know, I had um, other books like, you know, Jay-Z's Decoded and stuff. And he was kind of like really fascinated by the idea, you know, he did my infamous life, but he was just really fascinated by kind of continuing in the literary world. I mean, he had, um, he had a, a, um, a small company called infamous books where he, you know, released a lot of things and he was doing stuff with, um, with men in prison who were writing books and he was still in their commissary. He was doing a lot of cool things. And he could write and for real. He could write. I mean, obviously he could, he could yeah. rap for real, but he could write, write for real mm-hmm. too. I mean, uh, he write books for real. Like, like my infamous life is an incredible memoir. It is. And it's all from letters that he wrote to Laura Checkaway, like, like pages just, you know, and yeah, he was, a, but, but he read so much, mm. you know, they always say that, um, the, half of writing is reading, right? And he read and read and read and read. So, of course he could write, right? So, you know, I think he was just very much looking for kind of someone that he can just work on things with and put his thoughts together with and and kind of just do that. And, you know, we vibed and, you know, it was like just going back and forth and like you know sometimes I still look at our text conversations of just like the sarcastic things we would say back and forth and um we just had a lot of plans he had a lot of plans you know he wanted to do so many different things and it was me I had my next five years mapped out in terms of my career with him Mm. and um after he passed you know you just have to really like figure out like what you're gonna do next right um I felt like like puffy at the end of victory you know, like what are we supposed to do now? Like right. literally, right. like just, you know, it was like everything just kind of fell apart. But, um, I reintroduced the idea of a book on women in hip hop and it hit. And then, you know, 
thankfully that book came and then Aaliyah came and you know the whole the whole thing just kept right going and, from and there. you're of course mentioning your your book which is forthcoming about about Aaliyah um you know when when does that drop and 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 um yeah I mean I, I just I, I I'm so excited to read it but what can we expect too from from it uh it's called baby girl better known as Aaliyah and um it's coming out um August 17th through Atria Books I'm in Schuster uh, which is a different publisher from God Save the Queens. Uh, God Save the Queens came out through D Street, HarperCollins. Uh, you know, I felt that after 20 years, there needed to be a more comprehensive kind of uh, biography on Aliyah that didn't just end with her death. You know, so much of Aliyah's legacy is what happened in the 20 years since she passed. You know, there's there's a reason why she still comes up in conversations. There's a reason why people still dress like her. There's a reason why people are still so excited for the day that her music can come on streaming platforms. So, you know, either I wanted to just create a biography or just, you know, an all encompassing story that honors her in a different way from how she had previously been spoken about in, um, in other projects and books and stuff and just really talk about you know what she did while she was here and then how her impact has the impact has lasted after she left no certainly yeah well i'm, I'm very much looking forward to that um I, there are there are a few things in in god save the queen that queens that i want to i want to talk about and and you mentioned 20 years one of the things that struck me and it, it almost like yeah, I, I had to pause and i i might have like low-key or high-key like wept uh, that it's really been 20 years since we've really heard from Miss Lauren Hill. Um, and you, you have such a beautiful section in your book about her and about her work, but you say something of, I mean, I, that might be even, I'm, I'm, you know, misquoting, but you kind of, you, you frame it in that way that it's been two decades since arguably, you know, the illest, one of the illest, at least top five to ever do it. We've really heard from in a significant way. Um, that, that really struck me as a profound moment in, in your book. Yeah, and I I purposely dedicated two chapters to Ms. Lauren Hill because, well, for one, she's one of my favorite artists of all time, you know, and um, I feel like there were, there were two parts to her career, right? There was everything she contributed to the industry and then everything the industry took from her. So I wanted to make sure that I, A, made that delineation, but B, ended on a note where she doesn't really owe us anything. Right. Because, you know, I think for me as a writer, but also for me as a hip-hop fan, and I think for so many of us who have left that door open, I wanted to give us some form of closure. Now, she may come out with an album at some point, right? That, that may happen. But I wanted to run through the reasons and the facts as to why that may not be and why that's okay. You know, I, um, I really don't like the conversation that centers around the fact that people will argue that she is not a legend because she only had one solo project where if she were killed, she could be considered a legend with one solo project, right? right. And the reality is she had two group projects one solo project and one live album. So if that's not criteria enough, you know, I, I, I don't like the way that, you know, 
the rules lean in, in male artists' favor when it comes to how they can judge about like skill or goat status or you know legendary status and, and it's just one of those things where you know just because she's still here and choosing not to give us more music does not mean that we can't judge her by the, the, the music that she did give us and talk about how incredible that was now people may not have liked the way the Unplug, um, Unplugged album was um, presented but half of the rhymes that she was talking about still speak today right like she she was saying things she had bars right and you may not like the fact that she was crying with an acoustic guitar but li- like listen with your ears and not your eyes and I think that you know so much of just what we did to Lauren Hill yeah. because everyone was so demanding everybody wanted wanted more and more and more and didn't give her enough time to kind of take it all in and the one thing that I always talk about is she was like barely 23 years old when Miss Educational Lauren Hill came out I remember what I was doing at 23 right and I would have sure as hell been overwhelmed a bunch of fuck shit you know just a, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. insane well, I look forward to that biography, uh, maybe, in, in your future from you. Your lips to God's ears. Listen, just put it out there. You know, one of the other things, and, and I, I don't, I don't want to make you talk about every single chapter in your book, but I, I just, I really, it, it meant a lot. Um, I love how you framed early on the Roxanne Wars, you know, um, and, and just it, because, you know, the way you position it, and, and this is true, of course, that it was one of the first moments on Wax where we saw this very public battle take place, uh, right. you know, be, you know that, that was created by essentially, um, you know, a woman responding to a fiction. Um, and, 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 and just, I don't know, I just, I love that moment that happens very early on in the culture, particularly the culture on Wax. Um, and, and how you give credit to, to those those pioneering uh, women of that moment. Well, it was really funny how, you know, the Roxanne Wars, like, it was like a schism, right, of sorts where people were jumping in. I mean, we had someone who claimed that she was the real Roxanne, right. you know. Um, but, you know, Shantae took on the personality of Roxanne to give that person a voice in, in song, right? So, you know, UTFO is sitting here, you know, going after this random girl, this random Roxanne, making her have no voice on how, like, why she wasn't, you know, acknowledging their advances. And Shantae came in and was like, let me, let me respond from her perspective, or let me, let me explain to you why you're not getting that call back. And the first thing that they chose to do was to take the identity away again, right? No, 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 this is the real Roxanne. And then what started to happen was a bunch of artists just jumped in and just started to use Roxanne as kind of like the target, you know? And Shantae talks about this, um, you know, in, in other interviews where she says that, like, she was target for the most songs in hip-hop history, like, against a particular person. Right. Which is just insane. Yeah. And she was a teenager. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
No. So yeah, no. I, I just I love I love the the stories that you share, and of course her her voice in there. Um, you know, you you do a really beautiful thing in the book too, where you I wouldn't say qualify, but you know you're you you're forthright about. Um, an examination of your own whiteness, and I think one of the one of the great things that hip hop does for so many of us is that it makes whiteness visible and something that we then have to wrestle with if we're part of the cultural space. And and you do a great job in the book of of saying that not only profoundly in, in one particular moment where it's more explicit, but time and again where you're saying women, and then you know you particularly women of color have it you know harder than you is you know what I'm paraphrasing but 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 I'm wondering how a a a white girl from suburb, suburban New Jersey you know not only finds her way to be you know a a historian a documentarian someone who's writing about the culture but of course you know and I I know that your mom passed and, I, and I'm I'm sorry about that rest in peace but but I wonder what what they thought about this and and what they you know thought you know early on to obviously you this is your career but but you know from that time when you were even before Sam Goody to then, you know, publishing and, and, and living a life very much immersed in the culture. So I, I had this kind of um, split life growing up. Um, you know, my parents were, were divorced since I was a kid, like, you know, two, right? And um, my family, when they came from Italy, they all came to Patterson, New Jersey, which is an inner city. And my mom's hot in the inner city. And my, my um my grandmother still lived in the inner city. So growing up, I went to school in Patterson and um, I primarily stayed in Patterson while my mom worked. So most of my like childhood and teenage years was, was spent in, in Patterson, right? So, you know, I would I would come home to the suburbs of Hawthorne, New Jersey, and I'm, I'm wearing a, my Debbie Harry, my Blondie t-shirt, because she and I had the exact same history. You know, her family's from Patterson, and then they moved to Hawthorne, right? So I, I had that same thing, you know, Hawthorne's a tiny suburb of Patterson. And it was interesting because, you know, most hours in the day were spent in Patterson, and then I would come home uh, and see my suburban friends and it was like we were from two different planets and I would like, it was almost having to costume change, right? Where, you know, I knew I knew who I actually was, but you know, it's hard to go home and um, talk about all the walls you were writing on to your friends, <laughs> you know, but- uh, So wait, did you, what, was, what, what were you writing by the way? Did, what was your, what was your uh, gnome de plume? Um, <laughs> it went from, I, I went from K-Love to Lady K, um, and then when I signed up for um, the Roots OK Player Boards, ECA, but it was L-I-D-I-E. And, um, you know, I, I did that one for a little while, too. Dope. So, um, and then for a little bit of time, I did Lady I, because my last name is Yandeli, but I'll never forget, like, the way... For some reason, the way that I tagged Lady I... The D, like, I don't, for the, for some reason, it just looked like I was writing lay one. And I remember just being like, I gotta change this. Like, I was always, like, switching it up because I, you know, you just kind of had to. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, I, I just, just, it wasn't like I had a, a far, uh, far and wide, um, you know, canvas. So you, you, you tag uh, five or six times 
and then they're like, then they 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 uh, find you, and then you gotta switch <laughs> it up again. Right. You know what I mean? That's right. Um, so it was it was one of those things where I um, I did I, I I went through in a in a very you know organic progression <laughs> through all of the elements of hip hop you know, growing up in, in Patterson, essentially. And um, by the time I got to, you know, pick a career, let's say, right? And I knew I wanted to work in music. Like, it was a no-brainer. I mean, I, I there was nothing, there was nowhere else I'd rather be, right? So I think that there is, and I, and I, always, I always cringe when, white people will say things like, well, you know, I'm not actually from inner, you know, like inner city. And, you know, I, I never want to be this. Some of my best friends are black person. Right. No, of um, course. Yeah. You know, but in terms of like the actual purity of hip hop, yes, some of my best friends are black, but that's not, that's not the point. Right. Um, the actual purity of hip hop was something that was a part of me since I was very young because of where most of my time was spent. So it wasn't something that was inauthentic where, you know, I was kind of like a voyeur, you know, I was very much entrenched in it. And um, to the point where I almost had to kind of like, you know, understand that, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't posturing. It wasn't like some Rachel Dolezal type thing, but there were things that I didn't understand as a little kid. Of course. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. when you're a kid in the eighties, right. So, um, I'm talking like, you know, 89, I was like 10 years old. Right. And a big fan of a different world. Right. But it didn't. And you know, my grandmother, uh, my family owned a cleaners in Patterson on, on Madison Avenue. It was, called, um, it was called victory cleaners. And on all my days off, I would stay at the cleaners and I would walk up and down the streets in like downtown. Well, it's not the downtown Patterson, but it's, it's an, it's an offshoot of like the downtown area. Right. Still very much Patterson, but I would go and, um, you know, I'd walk to the bodega and I would get my little, you know, um, roll with butter every morning or whatever. And then they would have like, you know, like shops where there'd be magazines and all this stuff. So I'd buy a copy of word up. Um, and then like one day, I came back, like, you know, my mom would give me a couple of dollars to, like, buy whatever I wanted that day. And I came back, and I, like, I I bought um, a leather African pendant. Because, you know, you see, like, X-Clan. Yeah, exactly. No, trust. I'm just like, oh, okay, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just, like, you know, I came walking back, right, with a copy of Word Up and, and an African pendant, right? And it didn't, it didn't, like, connect with me and my mother like you know my mother god rest her soul but you know god bless her soul my mother like never my mother always taught me to see color like the, anybody who ever says i don't see whatever like you're not that's not that's not a realistic approach to race right yeah but my mother like actually had to sit me down and explain to me like this is africa okay this is a continent that maybe 75 miles from where we're from right but you are not African. So just understand, you know, like understand that. And, you know, we like taught me all about Africa and taught me about the different parts. I knew more about 
the African continent than I did about pointing out states on an American map, right? Yeah. But no, shout out, shout out to your mom. Yeah, a- shout absolutely. Out to my mom. Yeah, yeah, for um, real. But you know, she was like, this, and it was a different time, right? Oh, absolutely. Where, yeah. You know, we but, didn't we didn't like, have the same understanding about you know, and and, and I think hip hop was. You know, I mean, you know, you're 10 years in or 12 years in, whatever, and it's such a new phenomenon. I mean, I, I mean, I, at 13, I told my mom I wanted to be a Black Panther because, you know, that's what I heard on <laughs> Wax, you know, and she right. was not as patient nor as, as smart as your mom and just, you know, beat the shit out of me. But, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, it, but yeah, it's like at that moment, like there wasn't the, the kind of, we didn't have the language or the racial discourse, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, but, I, but I do think, you know, I, I'm very grateful in that sense that, that because of those experiences, even to what you're saying, I mean, that, that hip hop made me very aware of race in a way that I think we are still reticent to have uh, uh, the conversation in, in this country ab- about it in some ways. And it wasn't about colorblindness. It was about recognizing our differences, celebrating them, making fun of them, roasting one another because of them, um, yes. but, but recognizing that they are present. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you have to kind of, you know, and I also had, um, I, one day I came home wearing a kufi. <laughs> like I didn't, I, I, like I didn't, or even like the leather, um, Oh, like the Kumo D joints. Yeah. 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 No, the one, like I had an Africa. On oh, top. word. Yes. Nice. Like I literally came home like every day. This is one particular store. I will never forget it. It was right on Madison Avenue, and, you know, they had, like, all of the magazines, and just on one rack, it was, like, leather hats with Africa and pendants and everything, and every time, every day I got money, I would come home wearing a new um, item, and my mom would be like, all right, look, right, (laughs) this is what this is, and I'm like, all right, cool, but I could still wear it, right, and, like, she actually wasn't like take that off like you know she was just like if you're gonna wear it and someone questions you no. you have to you can explain to them why you're wearing it yeah. right and what it means to you because now you know where Africa is on a map right because you know I mean I can't speak for a public school or private school in um you know the 2020s but in the 80s they weren't like weren't teaching really us about teaching much of anything about the yeah. rest of the world especially um with black and brown people no big facts well you know yes, so. when, when i think of patterson I, I think of uh you know some of the great poets that are from there you know william carlos mm-hmm. williams allen ginsburg and and yeah. i just i wonder as a writer you know what what your practice is um and and what it's like how often do you come to it how long does a book take you, you know, you know, things of that nature too. So I definitely think that, um, and maybe it's because I'm a double Pisces, right. But I definitely have, um, I'm undiagnosed ADD or creative ADD. Um, something where my, my head is always going in like, you know, multiple directions when it comes to writing, especially because I tend to be the person who will, write everything I, I, I'm not I'm not a one project girl right I never was since the moment I started because I think you know I started in a very turbulent time in journalism where working full time at just a magazine wasn't wise because the next day you could, you could be laid off and be done with it um, 
So I always had just a bunch of projects. And what I would do is like, if I knew I had a project due for some reason, I just felt like I had to do all the other projects instead. You know, maybe it's just like the rebellious nature of my brain, but and it's always writing. So it's not like I'm not writing, but what I, what I would do is I always felt like I had to have like a clean space. So like I have to have nothing to do and then I can write, you know, never works. So really, especially in this pandemic, this, this has been a test on my discipline as a writer, like incredibly like difficult. So what it used to be, my, my, my old pre pandemic, um, process was I would, um, I would wake up in the morning and I would, you know, go to the gym and then I would walk, um, in the park, right. As like kind of a park meditation, but then funny enough, I would go to the mall and then walk the mall. Mm. The New Jersey mall, like super suburban. I don't know what it was where I needed both. Right, right. right. Um, then I would do a couple laps in a bookstore. And then I would go and I, every day I would buy my groceries for the day. Because, you know, working from home and just being isolated was just crazy to me. So by the time all that happened, I would get up super early. And then I would come home and write. Mm. But I had to have a day full of experiences. So I would literally, then I would write, let's say, from like noon to 6. And by 6 p.m., I'm in the city. Nice. Either going to an event, hanging out with friends, whatever. Obviously, all of those days are, are um, on a pregnant pause. So now it's um, become a little more zen. I don't know. Like, I'll wake up in the morning. I'll, I, I bought myself a little... Um, not a Peloton, uh, and I bought myself a little treadmill, so I, um, I run in the morning, and then I meditate, and then I, um, get in front of my computer, and I go, but I also have to have, like, a little, like, um, psych myself up uh, session, because I don't, I don't have my car, right, like, I'm not, like, driving around, so I have to have, like, my, uh, my half-hour boogie session, and I'll do that, and then I write. (laughs) Don't. Um, well, Kathy Yondoli, it's been it's been a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Uh, where can the internet stay in tune with with all of what you're doing? Where's the best place to uh, keep tabs? Um, all social media, K A T H three zero 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 Kath three thousand. Dope. Well, thank you so much for being in the corner store. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.